we're beginning a, uh, a walk through the Gospel of Matthew. Not every single verse and every single chapter, but uh, a good smattering uh, of such as we uh, ask the question about who is the real Jesus? How do we get past this assumption that we know who Jesus is, that we've heard it all before? How do we make sure that we get the full picture of this Jesus that is painted for us uh, by Matthew? I'm going to read for you uh, the first 17 chapters of Matthew. If you're wondering why it's me, sorry, first 17 verses of chapter 1. <laughs> Debbie looked somewhat worried at that point. Well, it would save writing a sermon, wouldn't, I? wouldn't it? Actually, the interesting thing is about, about all the books in the New Testament is they were written to be read rather than written to be read. And uh, it would be a fantastic thing one day simply to listen to somebody really good rather than me uh, read the whole of a gospel. Um, there have been a few people down the years, actors, who've actually taken on learning the whole of a gospel and then performing it. And you get it as it was meant to be, um, heard, not just seen. Um, you're going, if you actually find Matthew chapter 1, which is, it doesn't have a page number on it, but page 965, you'll be probably assuming we're going to start at verse 18 uh, with Christmas. That's next week. Today, we're going to look at the first 17 verses, and you'll understand quite quickly why I haven't been cruel enough to ask anybody else to do the reading. Um, when I, when I uh, trip up over all these names, uh, it's just me. It's fine. Um, my argument is we don't know exactly how they were said at the time anyway, so any of my pronunciations is fine. Here's Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew writes, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Now, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of um, Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, uh, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Eb um, Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Well, exactly to the day, 10 years ago, uh, April the 15th, 2008, uh, we as a family were having a very, very exciting holiday, still one of the favorite things I've ever done in the whole of my life, um, spending 10 days in Washington, uh, D.C. And uh, we had two young children with us, and we were staying in a, a sort of... Um, sort of sweet hotel, a um, little bit out of the, the center of the city, and uh, it was beautiful weather. It was the, the blossom was all out. If you've ever had the chance of being in, in Washington in the spring, uh, the, the cherry blossom is just phenomenal. And we, we'd got up fairly early one morning, having two young kids, and uh, we had our breakfast um, and then some, and we decided we would walk, rather than get the metro, from the hotel uh, into sort of the Mal uh, area. And... Um, uh, we started off, it was a beautiful, beautiful spring morning, and we were enjoying the walk. But as we started to walk, it started to become a bit frustrating because we had our map, we knew where we wanted to go. It's not a particularly difficult city to navigate your way around. But we kept coming across roadblocks. Um, and even as pedestrians, there were points at which we had to, oh, we, we want to go down there, so we're going to have to go down this way and down the side and across that way. And there were police everywhere and police horses, and there were barriers being put up. And it, it, it just felt like a... Sort of, we were being tripped up along our way. We wanted to get there, but something was happening. And we hadn't been reading the news particularly. We certainly hadn't been reading the local news. We had no idea what this was all, was all for. And as we got closer and closer to the centre, it became busier and busier, and more and more barriers, and more and more police, and bigger and bigger crowds. We really started to think, well, what's going on here? Now, we did know uh, that the then British Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, was visiting but, and this isn't a party political point, we had a hunch that the crowds of Washington weren't turning out uh, to line the streets for the visit of a British Prime Minister. And we were right. It was nothing to do with him. In fact, he pretty much arrived and went and was completely ignored by everybody apart from, I, did, I do think he met the President briefly. Actually, what this all was for was for Pope Benedict. Um, Pope Benedict was coming on a visit uh, to Washington, D.C., and we actually got to see the Pope Mobile uh, going past a little bit later in the day and uh, the huge crowds and there was a big sort of procession either side and it was all about him. It was all in aid of him. This big procession, all these preparations, it was all about the importance of this visitor. Uh, far, far, far sort of um, engulfing any importance of a, a British Prime Minister as far as the, the DCers were concerned. And, and I had that sort of feeling as I was coming to Matthew 1. You want to get on to, to Matthew, the end of Matthew 1 and Matthew 2, the birth of Jesus. You sort of want to get on to the main event. And this sort of procession of people gets in the way. You want to get on to the destination of your journey, but something is making you sort of pause and stop and tread a slightly different journey. But Matthew is no fool. One of the things you discover about Matthew's gospel is that every word is in its right place. The shape, the structure of the whole is just right. It's shaped just as it's meant to be. And Matthew knows exactly what he's doing. He is determined that we shouldn't miss the fact that the whole of what he's writing is about Jesus. Not just about what we now call Christmas and the birth of Jesus, not simply about some of the things that Jesus did, but about who Jesus is, about the real Jesus, about his identity, about his person. And this great procession of people that he uh, lays out, that he lays out as three sets of 14-ish, 
is all part of saying to us, don't miss Jesus. Don't miss who he is. Now, the thing to tell you right off about this genealogy is that it's representational, not technical. This isn't Matthew saying, I'm going to tell you every single person that has been an ancestor to Jesus. What he's doing is he's laying out for us in this beautifully sort of choreographed way a procession of people that will tell us something about who this Jesus is. And so you get roughly three lots of 14 generations. We know that he's missed out names quite deliberately to make it three lots of 14, uh, quite apart from anything else. Uh, When you hop uh, in verse 3 from Perez down to Aminadab, which is four generations in his list, it's roughly 400 years' worth of history. Uh, Perez um, is as they arrive in Egypt uh, with Joseph as the, the, the chancellor of Egypt and that sort of thing. Uh, Aminadab is part of Moses' posse as they head off into the wilderness some 400 years later. So this isn't a sort of technical list of, right, I'm going to tell you exactly what happens. He says, I want to show you this great procession of God's people down over centuries and the fact that these three lots of 14 generations land us at the feet of Jesus. Why 14? Well, there are so many theories, I'm not going to go into them all. My, I, genuinely, I think the most likely is that, uh, that the Hebrews and in their writing love numbers. Uh, and uh, quite often you'll find things where somebody's name represents a number. That was a very common device in those days. And David, the great king that sits right at the heart of these genealogies, the one whose ancestor Jesus is, uh, sorry, whose um, descendant Jesus is described as, David uh, represents 14. Uh, in the numbering system of the time. And it's all about Matthew simply saying, don't miss it. It's not about anything else. It's all about Jesus. This great sweep of history going all the way back to Abraham, Genesis 12, some 2,000 years before Jesus, some 4,000 years ago for us, all of it points to him. It begins with Jesus, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It ends with Jesus. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, 14 generations in all, 14 from the exile to the Christ. Matthew is determined that we shouldn't miss that it's all about Jesus. Now, Matthew um, probably, although again, people have a fight about this, but probably, uh, for my money, Matthew, one of the apostles, one of the original uh, 12 disciples, writing the book of Matthew, probably in Antioch, which was a Greek-speaking city, but with a large number um, of God-fearing Jews, um, writing, we think, most likely, somewhere around 60 AD, roughly 30 years after the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, And this gospel is quoted quite early on in church history. Um, Ignatius, who was the bishop of Antioch, quotes Matthew's gospel in about AD 110, not that long after it was written. And from the start to the end of Matthew, Matthew wants us to meet the real Jesus. He wants us to meet this king who has come to reign. He wants us to meet the one whose life and death and resurrection changes and is at the center of church history. Now, you and I want to get on to Christmas. We always assume that all the Gospels must start with Christmas, only to be disappointed that Mark doesn't do anything about it. Matthew trips up, up over the genealogy. John wants to write poetry. We want to get on to Christmas. 
Now, we will do next week. I'm going to, it's going to be quite fun doing Christmas in April. The weather's almost been good enough for that. Um, but when we do get on to Christmas, verse 18 of chapter 1 and then the whole of chapter 2, we find a whole load of very strange, surprising things happening. We find that this Jesus is born of a virgin. We find that this Jesus is visited by these non-Jewish Gentile visitors from the East. We find that this Jesus is given astonishingly odd gifts for a baby. Gifts that have more to do with kingship and worship and life and death than anything else. We find that this Jesus has to escape back into Egypt to the very place where God's people had been rescued from. There's a lot of strangeness to come. And part of the reason why chapter 1, the genealogy, is there is because the strangeness will be a lot less strange when we've read the genealogy. Because all that richness, the richness of a virgin birth, the richness of visits from non-Jewish Gentiles from the East, the strangeness of strange gifts and an escape into Egypt, all of it makes more sense when it comes as the culmination of all this history of God. But there's something even more to this. It's not just a precursor to Christmas. I want to suggest that the reason you and I need to take note of these strange names in groups of people, many of whom we've never heard of, many of whom we have no other record of, particularly that final set of 14, is because of how easy it is to make faith, Christian faith, about something and someone other than Jesus. Now, it seems an odd thing to even imagine, given that to be called a Christian is to be named after Christ. And actually, we today, just like Matthew's first readers, can so easily turn faith into all being about me. I can look at my Christian faith, firstly, as being about what I need. About what I need. The answers to prayer that I need. The strength that I need. The the self-identity that I need. The stuff that's, at the, if you like, on my list. Whereas Matthew wants to say it's not simply about what you feel you need. It's about what God is giving you in Jesus. But we also, also can make faith about me because we think it's all about what I do. It's about what I need, but it's also, therefore, about what I do. If God's going to give me what I need, I think, well, I must have to do something. So maybe I have to pray enough or go to church enough or give enough money or be a nice enough person. I have to live a good life, and then maybe God will take notice of me. And I want to suggest that as we walk very briefly through some of these names in the genealogy, we're going to find that Matthew wants to say a big and loud but actually a glorious no to both of those assumptions about faith. Faith isn't about me. It's not about what I need, nor is it primarily about what I do. It's all about God's gift to us in Jesus. Well, let's start with this assumption about what I need. If you'd asked uh, the people, the the God-fearing Jews at the time of Jesus and those who were reading or hearing Matthew's gospel, what they felt they needed, many of them would have had as a number one or certainly pretty high up the list that what they needed and what their people needed was the Messiah. Now, there were lots of different uh, images of what the Messiah might look like, but what they had in common was that the Messiah was God's anointed one, which is what this Greek word Christ means, literally anointed, set apart, commissioned. 
And those at the time of Jesus, those at the time of Matthew, uh, God-fearing Jews would have said, we know that we need God to act. We know that we need God to send his Christ, his Messiah, his anointed one. We're looking forward to the day when God acts and brings us the one we need and rescues us. He needs to rescue us from the Romans, our oppressors. He needs to properly and fully and finally, um, if you like, bring us back from that exile, from being in charge of our own destiny, having our own king, being able to worship the way we want to worship. We need God to act. We look forward to his Messiah, to his anointed one, to his Christ. That's what we long for. And the expectation was written in all sorts of different ways, imagined in all sorts of different flavors. But at the heart of it, the expectation was that God would put his king, his anointed one, on the throne, that he would vindicate his people, God's Old Testament um, ancient people, Israel, and that uh, he would be seen to be king over all. That's what they looked forward to. And all sorts of people down the years came and proclaimed themselves the Messiah. And some of them ended in bloody battles against the Romans, trying to rebel, and all of them, in one way or another, failed. Now, Matthew wants to say to them in this genealogy, yes, you are right to long for the Messiah, to long for the Anointed One, to long for the Christ. He's here. He's come. Verse 1, Jesus Christ. Christ isn't just a surname. Christ was a title, much more like saying King Jesus uh, or uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, May. This was a title. It described his job. Jesus the Christ. Jesus Christ, the son of David. This was the one who was to come. But he wasn't simply going to come for them. He wasn't simply going to come to do what they needed done. He was going to come for the whole world. How do we know? Well, partly because Matthew starts where he starts. With Abraham. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Genesis 12, where we first read of God's call uh, on Abraham, says this, The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham was a reminder to them that Jesus wasn't simply coming to meet their needs. He was coming with good news for all people. And there's another beautiful reminder that's writ through four very surprising names or people that are in these first few verses. Names you generally wouldn't expect to see in any genealogy of the day. There were a lot of genealogies. You find it in a lot of the literature of the time. People like to trace their own history. People like to be able to show how somebody important came from somebody important, had a great history. They went back to King David or whoever. But most of them didn't include women at all. And if they did include women, the women they would include would be the great matriarchs, people like Sarah, who was married to Abraham. What you wouldn't find anywhere with these particular four. So verse 3, you've got Tamar. Now Tamar was a Gentile, not a Jew, with a very checkered history that we'll come back to. Uh, you've then got um, Rahab, verse 5. Again, Rahab was not a Jew. In fact, she was a citizen of one of the cities 
that the Israelites conquered as they came into the promised land. Then you get Ruth, the end of verse 5, who gets a whole book of the Bible named after, but again, was not a Jew. She was a Gentile, a Moabite, who chose to return to Israel with her mother-in-law. And then finally, although not named but referred to, the end of verse 6, uh, Solomon's mother, that we, whom we know is Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba was a Jew, but she was married to Uriah, who was a Hittite. And in those days, if you married, especially if you're a woman, and you married outside of your people, you were counted, effectively, as a Gentile. So not only are these four women, women who would never appear on any other genealogy of the day, not only do most of them have very checkered histories, but actually all of them, in one way or another, would have been counted as outsiders. You see, this Jesus that we're going to meet as we walk through Matthew isn't just to meet our needs. Isn't just about us, me, I. Yes, he loves to meet our needs. He loves to be with us. He loves to answer our prayers. But actually, he came for the whole world. That's why, as, uh, along with Rachel, as she asked us to pray for people that she knows that doesn't yet know Jesus, actually, that should be right at the heart of all our prayer lives and all of our lives. This Jesus that we've met, who is good news to us, isn't meant to be just meeting my needs. He's for everyone. I wonder who you're praying for at the moment. Who in your family? Who amongst your work colleagues? Who uh, amongst your friends? Who amongst your neighbours? Who are you praying for that they will get to meet this Jesus who is good news for them, not just for you? So Jesus is for the whole world, this Messiah, this chosen one, who's come to bring the good news of God for them. But he's also not come simply to give them a list of things to do, as if these needs will be met when we've become perfect people. And again, the beauty of these four women that are named is that all of them, in one way or another, have pretty checkered histories. Tamar... uh, Uh, seduces her father-in-law into an incestuous relationship from whom uh, uh, Zerah is born. Uh, Then you get Rahab, who's a prostitute in the city that the Israelites are about to conquer. And you get Bathsheba, whose adulterous relationship with David and almost certainly uh, abusive relationship with somebody in power um, uh, results in Solomon, the great king. You then get, a little bit later on, this incredibly um, up-and-down list of kings who are all over the place. Um, You get, let's just find him, Rohab. Let's just have a little look. Um, Got to get them in the right order. Verse 7. We get Rehoboam. Let's just, yeah, here we go. So, verse 7. You get Rehoboam who's a really, real bad guy. You need to start reading some of these, the stories of some of these leaders of God's people. Rehoboam was terrible. Abijah was terrible. You then get two goodies, Asa and Jehoshaphat. They're God-fearers, they love God, and they, they, they follow him as they lead God's people. But then you get another terrible king in Jehoram. In other words, you get this incredible sort of up-and-down um, lineage of kings of God's people. And it's as if Matthew's wanting to say to us, look, this isn't about God only coming to good, perfect, wise, godly people. This is about coming to a broken, fallen world 
This is God coming even to those who've been given great gifts and have squandered them, even who've been given great power and have damaged God's people. Jesus is the heart and the point of this whole procession of three lots of 14 generations. Jesus is the one who's come not just for our needs, but to bring good news for the whole world. Who are you praying for that they'll meet this Jesus who was prepared for over so many centuries? And he's come not just simply so that we can be nicer people, better people, good people, trying to live perfect lives, keeping our noses clean. He's come into the mess of a broken world, just as Mike was helping us to pray into, a world where we hardly dare watch the news that's mirrored in the pages of the Old Testament kings of history. Jesus steps into that world for these people. And we come out not simply to watch a procession go by, but we come out to meet the one and to to be loved by the one and to walk with the one about whom the fuss is made. Jesus, this real Jesus. We'll think about his birth next week. We'll celebrate Christmas at the wrong time of year. But we do so because it's all about him and his good news made real in us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this astonishing procession of your people down over so many centuries. Thank you for Matthew's reminder that it's all about Jesus. And we thank you, Jesus, that when you came and lived and died and rose again for us, you came to bring good news not just for us, not just for one people or one gathering, but for all people everywhere. And we thank you that that good news is one of forgiveness, of new life out of brokenness, of hope in the midst of despair of a new start when there seems to be a dead end. And we pray that as we walk through this gospel over the next few weeks, you would open our eyes and hearts wide to the reality of this Jesus made real for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.